Welcome to the Self Made Theory, the podcast that's all about innovating, overcoming, and prospering. We interview founders, entrepreneurs, innovators, CEOs, and other exciting people about their amazing business journey. Over to your host, Ben Campbell, for this week's episode. This episode might inspire you to take a step back, reflect on your work or business, and think of innovative ways to disrupt the traditional, perhaps broken, business model you are operating in. I interview Melissa Larkin, who's the founder and managing director of legal and consulting firm Peripheral Blue. In this episode, Melissa shares her commitment to forge her own path towards a new style of legal practice by disrupting the traditional partner-centric legal firm model. She focuses on providing service in a more flexible, affordable way by getting to know and really understand her client's business, whereas traditional law firms are really focused on just billing the next six-minute increment. It's a real challenge to the traditional legal firms around the world. My name is Ben Campbell, and this is The Self-Made Theory. Melissa, welcome to The Self-Made Theory. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right, we're going to start with your elevated pitch on who is Peripheral Blue. Well, I founded Peripheral Blue in uh, 2016 with the aim of disrupting the legal and professional services industry by providing clients with access to top-tier, responsive, um, affordable legal and consulting services. I really believed that there was a disconnect in the value proposition and that clients wanted more and that they wanted not just legal services, but all of the business and advisory services that they needed to effectively not just run, but grow their business. And so I decided that the time was right to found a firm and um, turn what what is the traditional legal model on its head and create um, a culture and a practice that was very client-centric and allowed me to provide the type of services to our clients that I knew that they really wanted and needed. So before you started Peripheral Blue, you'd been in the legal industry for a while, both here and overseas? 20 years. Mm. Yes. So I qualified in Adelaide and worked in Adelaide and then moved to Sydney. And following a stint in Sydney, I moved to Dublin, Ireland to finish, well, to undertake and complete my master's in law at Trinity College. And then I was fortunate enough to secure employment with uh, international firm um, Pinsent Masons, as it now is. And following the closure of their Dublin office, I moved over to work at Arthur Cox, um, which is one of Ireland's preeminent firms, and it was my great privilege to work there. So you said before that you want to disrupt the legal industry. Usually people disrupt things because they're broken or they see things that are not working. What was the challenge around the legal industry back then and probably still is in many firms today? I think that the, the, the fundamental challenge is the model. So a traditional firm is built out on the pyramid structure. So you've got obviously, you know, fancy office spaces usually, you've got exorbitant partner profit shares, and then you've got, um, so, so the on costs that are built in are, are quite high. And it's quite difficult to disrupt that from within because how do you turn around and say to the incumbent partners, well, actually your profit share needs to drop significantly because we need to shave off you know, costs and expenses and profits so that we can, in fact, lower the charge out rates or charge in a different way. It's very difficult to have that flexibility within an existing structure for completely understandable 
reasons. So let's, so let's just talk about the pyramid structure. So so at the top you've got the partners of the firm who all have a in effect a percentage ownership almost of the firm. Yes. So when the firm makes you know, a million bucks a year, that all gets shared between partners based on you know, their percentage their share. Percentage yeah. Share. So how many points they have. Yep. And and every firm's different, you know, with the way they structure that. But that's the fundamental. Fundamentally. Model. Yep. And so then underneath the partner the role, equity partners. The equity partners. You have you- salaried partners, so they would have the title of partner but they would be paid a salary, as their name suggests. And then, then you'd have special counsel, and special counsel would be um, specialists in their area and or, depending on the firm, in some firms, special counsel can be a pre, um, the step prior to salary partner, but in other firms it's not. It's a, a different pathway um, and it's for people in some firms who don't want to or f- are not suitable to get to the salaried partner point. And then below Senior special associate, counsel, yes. And then below that associate, below that lawyer, and then you'd have paralegals and you've obviously also got your trainees and secretaries. So there's a whole army, a whole crew, particularly in the large law firms, that come together um, and work on matters. And sometimes that can be great because, you know, many hands make light work, but from a client perspective, in my view, can not always be as efficient as it can be in a leaner operation. And I imagine the cost associated with a legal matter when I've got you know ten people working on it is going to be very different. It's very different, and of course, there are there are times where certain matters require bodies. They're just massive matters, and you need a lot of manpower on them. But there are a lot of other matters that can be run a lot more efficiently and in a much leaner, cost-effective way. With uh, so, and I think the other the other issue for me always with the traditional model, and it has always been this way, is premised on the fact that when you qualify as a solicitor, that you know that's great. You've gone to law school, you've done your practical legal training, you're admitted to practice, but the real training comes on the job. And historically, that has been done really on the client's dime because the assumption is that you have the junior lawyer, you bring them to the meeting, they're sitting there, they're learning, they're learning how the negotiations take place, how you take instructions. They go off, they have a a go at drafting something, and then the partner or the senior lawyer has to settle it. In some instances, the senior lawyer settles it, then it goes to the partner to finally settle depending on the structure of the firm. And so as the client, what am I paying for? A lot. So who am I paying? Well, it it depends on how the firms operate, but in many instances, you are paying for a number of bodies in the room. You are paying for really the the junior lawyer. Quite often, some of the junior lawyer's time will be written off, but still, you are paying for some of their time to have a go at drafting first. Whereas I viewed a lot of that as not the best way to serve the clients needs and not, and, and you know, it's very different for me to say that with the benefit of 20 years experience, because I've had the benefit of training. Yeah. And certainly the people we hire in our firm have all had the benefit of training in top tier firms. And so I don't say this as somebody who hasn't benefited from that system myself. Yeah. And it's, it's a grueling system. It's not an easy life surviving in those environments. But the training can be excellent. We've been able to use that training then to be able to provide a platform where we've been able to say, actually, do you know what? If we get rid of all of the other layers underneath and you deal just with us and we've all got 20 something years experience, can you imagine how much more efficiently we and more cost effectively we can get your job done? Yeah. And I imagine there's no desire to change if I'm a partner of one of those firms because I'm making money on everybody in the room. It, absolutely. And mm. it's hard It's hard to incent. When you talk about change, change is an interesting concept because you've got those of us in life, obviously I'm one of them, who embrace change and look for always ask the question, how could we do this better? What, why? 
Yeah. Has that, has that always been that case for you? Yeah. Yes, always, always. And I have always viewed my asking of those questions as a desire to always try to make things the best they could possibly be, the most efficient, the most productive, the best quality, the most sort of um, homogeneous approach, particularly in firms, so that, you know, different departments in firms all looked like they had the same offering and presentation to the client from an outward-facing perspective. I suppose the challenge with being someone like that is depending on the place that you find yourself when you're constantly asking, not constantly, but at appropriate times, asking why or could we maybe tweak this or could we maybe do it better, depending on the environment, that can sometimes be perceived as a criticism of what's already there, whereas in actual fact it's a desire to really work with everyone to make it better. So that comes down to the culture of, you know, the, the place that you find yourself in and the people you're working with or, you know, and that might be a committee, it might be the workplace, it could be home, it could be anywhere, but it's the same sort I mean, they're all the same human mm. drivers. And some people, when they hear change, they think about, you know, it's you're basically saying that what they've already done or what's gone before is not good enough. And that's never how I view it. The way I view it is always that, you know, as I've said, even from our perspective, we benefited from that training. But do I think going forward, now that, you know, technology is advanced and there is entirely possible now to set up a law firm like we've done and build a client base from scratch and provide really efficient and really highly technical service at a much more affordable price point in a very different, more flexible way. I think that that's an amazing opportunity. And I think that that change was very much needed by the clients, even if they might not have been aware that there was a, an alternate option. Okay, so you've grown your career inside of traditional law firms. You've benefited from the structures and other things that they've had. You realise that there are a bunch of things that they could do a lot better for the client. What did you do next? Well, I quit my job and <laughs> walked away from the career I'd spent. Hang on, hang on, hang on. So did you have an idea before you quit your job or did you just throw it in and say, I've had enough? No, no, no. I had an idea, but um, yeah, I mean, it was it was an exceptionally difficult decision to make because I had spent two decades across two continents building this career and I had had three children along the way and kept at the career the whole time. And the one fortunate thing is that I genuinely loved being a lawyer. I always loved what I did. And even if I didn't always like where I found myself working, I absolutely loved the client interaction and the, the basic service of law. And that was something I was always really grateful for. Um, after I had my third child, so around 2014, I noted, I started thinking more and more about you know, I had, at that point I had been seconded to a, a large company and I had watched secondees come in and out. And I, it had dawned on me that there was perhaps a more efficient way of doing that. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if you had a firm where they actually took the time to get to know the company, um, you know, what drives them, what their, you know, what their risk appetite is, what are their plans for growth, what's their internal structure, what is their position on, you know, insurance and all, all of these other things that normally you don't find out unless you're actually drafting a contract on the spot or you're sitting in there and you realise, oh gosh, I need to do some work and I don't know who to ask and you've got to ask someone to direct you. Because the, the, the fundamental difference between being in-house and an external lawyer is that as an external lawyer, the point at which someone comes to engage you, they formed a decision in their mind that they need legal help and the person instructing you is the person who is authorised typically from that company to instruct you. 
and has a brief usually to instruct you because people are generally mindful that they want to limit their costs and they want to have, you know, to, to sort of ring fence what it is they're getting you to do. The difference in-house is that you're really working as part of their team and you, if you drop into an in-house environment, you have to know what you don't know and you have to have enough confidence to speak up and say, actually, I don't know that and that's not a reflection on me not being a good lawyer. That's actually a reflection on me having enough self-awareness to say, I don't know because I have not got one person instructing me. I have to go and get information potentially from different stakeholders within this business and I need to know who they are and I need you to direct me to them. So I, I saw this gap that wouldn't it be really great if there was a firm and I knew having spent so many years in firms that if from my experience that didn't exist and the reason it didn't exist comes back to what I perceive as being the flaw in the overarching traditional model and that is that in that partnership pyramid structure for it to be profitable you have to have set billable hour targets for your client for all of the fee earners which creates a certain culture and so if you've got high fee earner targets and you know they can be anywhere from sort of 6.5 to 7.6 billable hours per day to achieve that number of billable hours, you have to work a lot more hours than that because a lot of what you do is not billable. And on top of that, you have to do your business development and you have to, you know, if, if you're wanting to progress and ultimately, you know, get to partner and have a client base, all of that has to happen too. So so what's a typical then typical work hour for someone oh, establishing a work day for someone establishing themselves in, in a legal profession? You'd work, you know, 10 to 13 hours, yeah. And that's pretty consistent. I mean, I always, in, in the firm I was in in Ireland, worked on a standard day 12 hours, yep. but normally a lot more, yeah. And, but that, and that, that it becomes normalised because everyone's doing it. Now, there are a whole lot of separate health issues that flow from that, um, which is one of the reasons why we're at Peripheral Blue. We've been um, such advocates for wellbeing in the workplace and different ways of working yep. and flexibility, but not at the expense of um, responsiveness or getting the work done, but just if you switch things up a little bit, it actually there are natural physical and mental and wellbeing benefits for the team, which the team benefit from, but also the clients. But in that model where you've got people having to bill a certain number of hours, it's very, very difficult to get to know the clients because the clients do not want, you're charging in six-minute intervals, the clients do not want to ring up and have a chit-chat about what their goals and hopes and aspirations are at, the, the, you know, your standard charge-out rates and six, charged in six-minute intervals. So, yes, in those firms you can take them to the footy and you can take them to, you know, pre-COVID, but you, yeah. you can take them out and get to know them. But in those sort of social settings you're touching on, it's, it's superficial, it's not to say that it's not enjoyable for everyone, but it's more, you know, happy it's, family. It's relationship it, building. It it's, not- it's not about the business. So you don't, I found, in my experience, it was very difficult to find those opportunities to really get into understanding what the business was. So that was where I saw the gap. And I thought about it long and hard. And the problem is, is once you start thinking about different ways of doing things, no matter how many years you have devoted to honing your craft or to building a career in a particular type of firm, it becomes almost impossible to continue doing what you were doing in the traditional way because every time you go to do it, you just see all the things that are wrong with it. And it's hard to work those hours and have that level of commit the level of commitment that's required if your heart's not in it. And my heart wasn't in it anymore because I could see, not in the practice of law, I still loved that, but in that model, I just could see all the flaws and the benefits were not enough for me. So what did you do? Well, I resigned and... I took a break for a few months and I wore gym clothes. I felt I'd had a, a period, a, 
prior to that where we'd had um, my, my grandmother, who I, who I was very close to, had been very, very ill and um, she'd been in the hospice for five months and we'd been, um, you know, it was, it was a very sad time for our family and I had resigned actually from my role whilst she was in the hospice and so she then passed and shortly after I finished up at the firm I was in and I just thought it was important to take some time because I had at that time three small children who were two, four and eight. I also had a restraint of trade um, which I wanted to respect and I assume that was for a reasonable period of time. For 12 months. Yeah. So I took a, a few months and just a couple of months, about three, and thought really long and hard about, so I had this idea and I, I had an idea, but I think at the beginning I thought maybe it would be more like me just doing a bit of consulting work, wearing my gym clothes and, <laughs> you know. Back then that wasn't normal, right? No, Today, that, wasn't, that not- wasn't normal. No, I know exactly. But, uh, you know, and, and being and being more present with my children who I had, you know, it had been quite difficult for a long time to juggle the demands of big law life with three small little people, particularly because his, I had also worked in litigation as well as um, corporate. So I'd done the drafting, but also the disputes and the disputes being in that space was quite difficult because I worked for a national firm. And so there was traveling involved in, you know, meetings and cases and taking witness statements and a lot of that, which all of which became more and more difficult as one child became two or became three. Not impossible. And we certainly made it work, but it was, it was really, it was, I felt very, very grateful to come out of that whole period and have had those few, I think I went on every excursion at school and, um, you know, got involved with the parents and friends and did a lot more about sort of relationship building within my own community, which was really important to me as well. And then, but the whole time I was sort of this idea was percolating about what I wanted it to be, because I knew from my own experience and from my interactions with the clients over all those years, that very definitely what we were going to offer was what they needed. Learning how to pitch it to them was going to be a challenge because we were describing to them something they hadn't ever experienced in that way. Even though aspects of it, which were the key aspects about the quality of service and our experience, were what they needed and were what they were familiar with, it was about how to explain why why and how what I was proposing was different. And then I had to build out a team as well and learn how to run a business and learn how to do all the things that as a lawyer you're not taught how to do. So we were very, very fortunate and I will always be so grateful to the clients who came on board from the very beginning. Um, so where did you get your first clients from? Uh, the first clients were one was a, a, a friend of mine who I grew up with who has an amazing business himself who's very supportive in the, we're, we're you know, still supportive and we sort of describe it as more of a partnership, which is yeah. we like to partner with our clients. So we were very fortunate to um, to work with them and, and grow. We, we've sort of grown with them. They've obviously been around longer than us, but it's, that's been fantastic. And then Santos became my next client um, which was just a just a small firm here in Adelaide. Yeah, so that was that, <laughs> that was um, really reassuring um, because it it's a massive. I think my concern going out on my own had always been that because I had spent all my entire career working for large firms who serviced very very large companies who historically had associated and chosen firms off the back of brands and the power of the brand of that firm and certain boards still need the power of the brand of a firm for certain sign-offs, which is completely understandable. And even though, you know, over time that has shifted a little bit to 
firms to, to clients picking an individual within a firm, they still had the benefit of knowing the firm and the brand of the firm. And I, I wondered and worried whether as an individual going out on my own, whether it would be enough and whether they would give me a shot. And so there was always that lingering doubt. And my husband said to me, you know, I back you, like you, you, you've got this, you're going to do it. And, you know, you've managed to work really successfully for everyone else for all of those years. And you can do this and you have to have faith in yourself. And, you know, and, and I was very, very grateful for that because it was definitely the push I needed because it is it's a massive risk when you walk away from big law life. If you're a founder of a business, a CEO or a senior manager, it's easy to think that you need to work out all of your business and leadership challenges yourself. But just because the buck stops with you doesn't mean you will have all the answers and it can be pretty lonely at the top. Great leaders will have an executive coach in their corner whose role is to challenge you, guide you and support you in a non-biased way that friends and colleagues just can't. Contact us at The Selfmade Theory and let us show you how qualified executive coaching and mentoring can help you innovate, overcome and prosper. So what's the risk though? Well, the risk is that you walk away from security and sort of financial security. Um, sure, and but it's not like you're not a great lawyer. No, but it's it, it takes time and if you've got a restraint of trade and you can't go knocking on the door of clients you've already serviced, there is a limitation there. And also, you know, you've, it, it, it takes time to build a business. It wasn't like I went into partnership with a group of other people who were bringing a client base with them. It was literally a startup. And that's, you know, so it's, it's quite an undertaking to build that from scratch. And I was also very fortunate that in terms of the team that um, I had gone to law school with uh, Cara Birch, as she now is, and uh, we had remained friends for all those years. And I knew when I started this that there would be a gap for privacy and policy work. And it happens that Cara's background is in privacy and policy, having worked for the regulator previously and for government organisations. And um, she was willing to take a chance on a startup as well and walked away from her job to join from the very beginning. Um, and so I, that, you know, which was fantastic. It was great to have that support. And then as time passed and we, we got busier, Sarah Thompson, who also went to law school with us at Flinders, returned back to Adelaide after having worked interstate and then being in house counsel at Zurich for 12 years in the UK. And she's joined our, she then joined our team a few years ago as well. So we were very fortunate in the way that we were able to grow and still retain the culture with knowing that we had like-minded people who had all had a really great training, but we shared that common education and time together at, at law school. And, and we've had the opportunity to since go back and, and talk to the students and about the opportunities that present themselves that you're not even aware of, mm. that, you know, you're sitting in lecture halls, never, ever, it was never, ever, ever on my radar that I would ever, I mean, I didn't even ever contemplate being a managing partner of a firm. All the years I spent in firms, I just wanted to be the best lawyer I could be. And if partnership happened, partnership happened. But, you know, part, but being a managing partner of a firm was not remotely on my radar, never, ever was starting my own firm on my radar. And it was just literally that I got to that point where once I started thinking about a different way of doing it, staying in the same system was just untenable. And then I just had to make it happen. And did I have all of the skills required to make it happen um, at that time? Probably no. I knew 
how to be a good lawyer. I knew how to listen. Well, that's a good thing. <laughs> it was a good start. Because you can be start. a great business person and not very be a very good yes. lawyer, and then you sunk. <laughs> that's that's true. And sued. <laughs> so you know that was that was. Um, you know, it was comforting. I knew that the, from a technical and legal point of view, I could do it. And then I knew that the team that we had started to form around us were all technically and legally really, really excellent. So how did you build out the skills you didn't have? Did you learn them yourself? I had to learn them, yeah. I built my A team around me, but initially, you know, you can only do that at a certain tipping point as well. So I think, and that was the challenge was identifying at the beginning, okay, well, this is where I think the gap in the market is. This is how we're going to pitch it. And then, of course, you've got to try and then gauge people's feedback. And along the way, there were certain, you know, I remember certain pitches that I did where, you know, some of the general counsel and companies, one in particular, I remember asked me some really valid questions. We, we'd only been in existence for three or four months at the time. And I didn't know this person, someone had referred me to them and they kindly met with me for a coffee. But the questions they asked me were on the mark, but we hadn't quite gotten to the point of, you know, working that aspect of it out. So after a few years, I touched base with that person again and said, you know what? So how did you respond? Did you say, we're not there yet or? Oh, no, no. I I gave an answer, which was adequate, but it was really, the the purpose of that meeting was actually more helpful for me probably than for the person who kindly gave me their time because it planted that seed that I needed about the next, what I needed to be working towards and the next steps, which were, and and a lot of it has been that, like really actively listening to the things that people are asking me. So subsequently, a few years later, as we had our house in order, I went back to that person and said, I just want to say thank you because those questions you raised with me, which albeit put me on the spot at the time, have been really instrumental in how I've managed to build things out. And just so you know, these are the answers and they work really well. And if you want the testimonials, here are all the people who can give you the testimonials. But it's been that sort of partly organic growth, but we never wanted to grow at a pace that would outpace or outstep our ability to provide that same really personal responsive service. And everything we have done has been about creating a culture internally, which is supportive, which celebrates the success of others, which is completely collaborative as a, amongst ourselves. And one of the reasons we can do that is because we don't have those billable hour targets where it, because the human nature is what human nature is. And in a firm, if you've got a billable hour target of 7.6 hours per day and someone, and you're sitting at six hours that day and someone comes to you with a piece of work and you could have a crack at it and you could do it and you could probably do it quite capably. But Susie sitting three doors down actually is an expert in that and could do it in half the time. What do you do? Now, I know what you should do, but what will you do? And that is the question which lawyers are faced with every day in those big law firms. And the culture of the firm and the metrics for financial reward and for promotion largely influence the way in people's behaviour there like they do in any workplace. And so, again, for me, looking at it through my client eyes, I thought, well, that's clearly not the best outcome. So the way in which we work is we very much, you know, and because no one's, there's never a concern about someone stealing a client or because it's very much the clients are the clients of the firm. The reason we don't have, the firm is not, you know, Larkin and Co. The firm has a very definite and deliberate name, which is completely different. And is where, where did the name come from? <laughs> well, peripheral because we were thinking about how do you do things differently, a different way of looking at things because everything I do is about different vantage points, different way. And so when we go into organisations, we go in and we're looking, yes, we have to accept what they've already got, but we're always going in and looking at it through a different, and, and we obviously now get the benefit of going in across a lot of different organisations. So you get the benefit of getting skills and tips from different places, but it was always about how 
if you if you looked at things from a different point of view, how what might that look like and how could you do things better or differently so that everyone has a better experience? So, so if you're looking the from the peripheral? From the peripheral. Yeah. yeah. And blue because blue is a really calming colour and most people don't have calm, positive associations with their lawyers. Lawyers are probably up there in terms of stress levels for people with a visit to the dentist. So um, now, is that is that on the lawyer or is that on the person's current circumstances and the reason they've engaged the lawyer? I, I think the latter and its associations and it's only natural. So typically, I mean, it differ, depending on what area you work in, but I mean, there's definitely different associations for our clients, for those who are with, you know, we're there to advise them on a business structure or a deal, which is exciting. And so they, you know, associate us with that, but then, you know, partnership disputes or, you know, litigation or problems or employment workplace issues, well, no one really wants to be talking about those with anyone. And so your lawyer's the safe place, your lawyer's your advisor, your trusted advisor, but there are then associations with that issue or that problem and the person that you spend the most time dealing with it with. So, um, the blue was designed to just because it's it's calming and lovely, yeah. And the upside down eye was hats off to turning the traditional model on its head. Yeah, very good. Now you've got a, great, a lot of great feedback from customers, but you've also won some awards, haven't you? We have. We've been really lucky. Yeah, really, really well. Can you talk to those? I can. Yes. Um, over the last two years, we've been finalists, which is extraordinary to me. If either finalists or won twelve awards which is a testament to the team's tireless work um, and collaboration. But, but we've been finalists in um, the Lawyers Weekly Awards. Um, I have the, in, in the Innovator category, which was last year and this year, which was super exciting and given that that's national award, was you know, I was really, really proud um, and up there against some amazing other lawyers in, in law firms doing great things, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. This year I was fortunate enough to be nominated um, as a finalist in the managing partner category in the Lawyer's Weekly Awards. So again, that was quite a surprise. And um, yeah, I mean, given that I still do the legal work as well, so probably a lot of managing partners and just managing and not doing, um, I felt again, very honoured to be in that cohort of finalists. We've what, Businesswoman of the Year in the in the My Business Awards last year. I was lucky enough to be a finalist in, and then we've been finalists in a number of Wellbeing Workplace Initiative Awards, which is really really important to myself and the team because a big part of what I wanted to do when I set out to build Peripheral Blue was to demonstrate to people that it is entirely possible to do top tier work at that level of quality and responsiveness but to provide those services, not just so that from the client point of view, the service offering is flexible and the rates are good and it's affordable, but from a team perspective that it is a nurturing, supportive, collaborative environment where you are basically supporting every member of the team to have a profile and to be um, to have a digital footprint and to be the best they can be and to be recognised for that because as they should be for because of all of you know the hard work that they put in and because they're amazing at what they do. So every time we're nominated or we make it to the finals for an award, I feel like it is validating and it's so important to us as a team that that validates the fact and I hope it gives the message to other people that it is possible to work in that way and still be successful and to have created um, an environment that, you know, that, that good work and top tier work and health and wellbeing are not mutually exclusive. And so, yes, we still work you know, long hours, but we work them 
in what I call a work-life blend. So instead of working, you know, 12 hours in the office, we, which is obviously not great from a posture perspective, a blood flow circulation perspective, yeah. <laughs> all of those sorts of things. Um, and it also, you know, when you're doing that and when I reflect on what I had to do to survive that way of working, it was a lot of coffee and dark chocolate and... Stimulants, basically. Is, which is you know, <laughs> not healthy. It's um, great. I love chocolate and I love coffee, <laughs> but they are not long-term sustainable they're not long, no, they're stimulants. Not. They're not at all. And so what we've been able to do now, just the fact that our day is broken up more and we sort of can chunk it and we can, you know, still be involved with our families and, you know, not if people don't have children, if they have hobbies or interests, so that they can have a blend between whatever it is that they need to do and what people need to do changes over the course of their life. So it might be young children, it could be ageing parents, it could be, you know, a spouse, it could be, you know, like we've just got a new puppy. And as I was telling you before, that's been quite disruptive um, in a really beautiful way, but it has. Um, would I have been able to do that before? No, probably not. So every so thank time... thank you for not bringing the puppy to the podcast. <laughs> it is very, very difficult to edit out barking on a... <laughs> I, 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 did, I did think that might be the case. So he, hopefully he hasn't got too much separation anxiety today. <laughs> so every time we manage to do things a little bit differently and succeed, and, and it's not just us saying we've been successful, but it's actually someone external from a respected organisation saying, you know what, by objective standard metrics and we say that what they're doing works and is great um, and is a benchmark for best practice in that space. That makes us so proud as a team. And finally, this year, I was um, fortunate enough to be successful as um, Telstra Businesswoman of the Year in the small business category for South Australia. So I was um, really, really surprised. Um, and it shows you what, yeah, what a difference a couple of years can make. Mm. So so if you had a couple of years over again, would you do anything differently? I think I probably would have done this sooner. <laughs> <laughs> but it took a lot of courage, a lot of, yeah, a lot of courage. But no, I think over, I, I'm really, really happy. Every decision we've made, we have made collectively as a team. It has been very strategic and very considered. I mean, at the end of the day, our job is to advise other people. That's what we do. So we're used to being strategic and considered. That bit was not the bit we had to learn about. The bit we had to learn about more was, I think, the marketing and the pitching and the running of a business per se, um, which has been really, um, from a personal growth perspective, has been great to have learned more. And it's made us better lawyers. It certainly made me a better lawyer because I understand so I mean, from personal experience now, I understand cash flow. I understand all of the trials and tribulations of being a small business owner. I'm not just paying lip service to what objectively I think my clients should or shouldn't do. I fully empathise and understand because I'm in the trenches with them and I get it. And I also understand why it's so important for small business owners to know that they have got that lifeline and that phone a friend because it can be quite an isolating. I mean, I'm very lucky with the team that I've got and the way we function here, but certainly as teams grow and they, you know, hit over that 3 million turnover and they go, you know, up to sort of 20 staff, 30 staff, 40 staff, you start to see changes in their culture that naturally happen and should happen, but it can mean that that sometimes you can lose the collaboration aspect that was there as a startup when you're all in one room and as they grow and the CEOs or MDs find themselves having to make decisions about structures and pathways, it can be really useful for them and highly beneficial for them to have 
somebody who they can trust, who's outside of the business, who those decisions that they're having to make um, don't affect, because that's that's the difficult thing. I think when you're a CEO of a smaller business and you're, you know, they're, they're working out, you know, salaries or bonuses or pathways, all that sort of stuff, all of those decisions, if they go to their leadership team, it affects their leadership team. So it's very helpful um, to have external um, advisors, whether they be your lawyer, obviously your accountant, your business consultant, your coach, Couldn't all of those more. sort of that, your, that a team of, of expert advisors who you need to trust who are in your corner, who I'll view it a bit like, you know, a box is in the ring and they've got the, or the you know, everyone in the corner kind of around them, keeping them going. So it's, it's a bit like that because as a business owner, and particularly every stage, every time you hit a stage of growth, um, it's new challenges. It's new challenges. And so people from outside looking in say, wow, it's a, it's a bit like when, you know, I had a career in a firm and from the outside looking in, it'll look great, but I felt trapped and suffocated from, you know, I feel now liberated and like anything is possible, which is an, an amazing way to feel. But equally, every time we get to a new phase of growth, from the outside, it looks like that's brilliant. And it is. It's wonderful. The reasons that bring you to that point are wonderful, but it is challenging. Brings new challenges. Every phase will bring some new challenges and some new learnings and some new excitement. Absolutely. So what does the future hold for Peripheral Blue? Well, I think we will continue to um, provide the service and build the relationships that we've spent the past few years carefully building and nurturing and developing. Um, and we are just so grateful to all of the clients. I mean, there are just so many of them who gave us a shot and, and you know, were willing to consider doing things differently in, uh, on you know, we were essentially a startup. And so, the, you know, the, the, we will continue to look after those clients and continue to, to be there for them um, because that loyalty is really, really important to me. And we um, will continue, we will add different um, service offerings as we grow and hire new staff. We will be able to diversify and provide more services, a broader set of services. And it's just sort of onwards and upwards, building out and beyond. Exciting times ahead. Let's hope so. <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much for sharing your story about Peripheral Blue with thank our you. listeners from the Self Made Theory. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving me your time. Cheers. Such an inspiring story from a successful corporate lawyer who decided to forge her own path and revolutionise the way legal services are provided. Thanks for listening to the episode. Don't just click on your next podcast. Head over to the website, theselfmadetheory.com, for more information about Melissa and Peripheral Blue. Until next time, keep innovating, overcoming and prospering.